And uh, so glad to see you all here. Wow, this is a interesting setup. This is all normal, but then you get some tables going off there. Um, it's always surprising to see how, how many people are in here on a week uh, and the, the configurations this room takes. But as we are getting settled, as we are uh, centering our minds and our hearts and turning towards the history of the Reformation, uh, let us pray that the uh, Lord would be with us here this morning. Almighty God, we thank you for this day, another opportunity to praise you, glorify you, and to learn more about how you have spoken through your prophets and your saints throughout the ages. Be with us this morning, and may all that we learn uh, guide us in our faith journey. We lift this up in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Now, it may be thought a little bit of temerity that I, you would have this Anglican up here discussing this week's topic, which is the Reformed tradition. Um, one of the things I like to joke about with Presbyterians and also Methodists is to tell them that God so loved the world he didn't send a committee. <laughs> but in any event, what we are going to look at is the history of the Reformed tradition through four people. I have a lot of material to cover. I don't know if I'll get through all of it. Um, and I wanna I'm going to be concentrating on uh, some people you may have be less familiar with. Uh, when I say who were the reformers of the Reformed tradition, what name comes to mind? John Calvin, I've heard. Any others? Zwingli. Zwingli, thank you. Good historian there. Well, almost everybody will say Calvin, and they will talk about Calvinism. When we get to Calvin, whom we're actually not going to spend quite as much time with, he's been covered so much, I think that Calvin could have felt very much for one thing that Carl Jung later said, God deliver me from the Jungians. And I think Calvin probably would have said, God deliver me from the Calvinists. <laughs> but you are very much on track because the person I want to start with is this gentleman, Ulrich or Ulrich Swingley, who was the reformer of Zurich. And the, he belongs to the first generation of reformers along with Luther. And that is an important thing to keep in mind because Calvin was really a second generation reformer and was more an organizer of reformation than really a, a groundbreaking reformer. Zwingli was born on January 1st, 1484 in Wildhaus, Wild House, in the canton of St. Gallen in Switzerland, in the Swiss Confederation. Uh, some people would probably think that given Swingley's later career, Wildhaus may have been an appropriate place to come from. And because he died October 11th, 1531 at Kappel in the canton of Zurich, anybody know how he, was di how he died? He was killed in battle. He was killed in battle, in a battle between Protestant Zurich and Roman Catholic cantons. 
So talk about giving your life for the Reformation. He was educated in primarily in locally and then for his secondary education in Basel and Bern. Now he had two dates of entry in the University of Vienna, one in 1498 and he was expelled. No one knows why he was expelled, but apparently it wasn't a very serious offense because he re-enrolled in 1500. But in 1502, evidently Vienna was not a good place as far as he was concerned, he transferred to the University of Basel in Switzerland. He got his MA in 1506 and was ordained a priest that same year. Now, in terms of his early career, he started out at the parish in Glarus in Switzerland and then later moved to Einsiedeln. And the reason why he had to leave Glarus is that he became convinced of the immorality of the Swiss mercenary system. And uh, he spoke out against it, which was not very politically correct. You see, the Swiss were caught in a triangle between three great powers at the time in Europe, France, the Holy Roman Empire, and the papacy. And different cantons supplied mercenaries to all three. And it was one of the major sources of income for some of the Swiss cantons. And can anybody tell me what the one remnant of that, of that system is? The Swiss guards at the Vatican. Very good. The Swiss guards at the Vatican are a latter-day remnant of the Swiss mercenary system. Basically, Swiss, you know, we think of Switzerland as this great neutral country, you know, and, you know, where everybody who wants to talk about peace, well, you go to Switzerland and everything like that. Well, not back in those days, they weren't very pacifist. Uh, they were the mercenary capital of Europe. And um, when Swingley spoke out against it, he had to leave Glarus to go to Einsiedel. Another thing that strongly influenced Swingley was the humanism movement, the movement of humanism in Europe, particularly Erasmus. Now, what was humanism? Uh, it means something different today when you hear about people talking about humanism and humanists today. It means something quite different than when it did then in the 16th century, 15th and 16th century. So a good way to look at it is this. Humanism is to Northern Europe what the Renaissance was to Italy. Humanism is to Northern Europe as the Renaissance was to Italy. It was a response to a, the utilitarian approach to uh, dealing with issues and thoughts and everything and to what they perceived as the narrow pedantry of medieval scholasticism. And their response to that was the advanced study and the use of what they called studia humanitatis, what we would today would call the humanities. 
Now, when we think of a liberal arts education today, we think of you know, a pretty broad range of academic subjects, and we do think of the humanities, we also think of things like arts and sciences. Um, liberal arts in the Middle Ages meant something very narrow. Can anybody tell me, actually it stems from someone who would lived shortly after the time of Augustine, right about the fall of the Western Roman Empire, a fellow by the name of Martianus Capella wrote a little book that was basically a summation of what they understood as what they knew. And there were seven liberal arts. Anybody know what they are? Well, the first group was called the Trivium where we get our word trivial. The trivium was grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And then there was the quadrivium, the group of four. Trivium essentially just means a group of three. The quadrivium was arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Now, why those subjects? because they were needed by the clergy in the church. You needed grammar to get your letters, the grammar you know, in your sentences clear. You needed rhetoric to write persuasive letters and sermons. You needed logic for argumentation and theological disputes. That's the trivium. You needed arithmetic because the church was a highly lucrative commercial institution and so you needed to be able to keep accounts. You needed geometry to build churches. You needed astronomy to calculate the date of Easter. How many people know how you calculate the date of Easter in the Western calendar? Michael. It's the first Sunday that occurs after the first full moon that occurs on or after the vernal equinox. Everybody got that? <laughs> you all can calculate that, I know, as a drop of a hat. And then why did you need music? For chanting, for all of the different modes that were used for chanting in church. So those were the seven liberal arts, and for centuries, through what was known as the Dark Ages, Western Christendom, that was the total sum of human knowledge. Those seven liberal arts. Well, the Studia Humanitatis took grammar and rhetoric from the old trivium, but tended to drop logic. Maybe they had begun to realize how little application it really has in human affairs. They added history and moral, theo moral philosophy. Mor Notice that, moral philosophy. In other words, history and ethics. But they had a special emphasis on poetry. Poetry. Because, you know, anybody care to know who the first Renaissance figure was? Is sort of listed as the first figure in the Renaissance in Italy? Come on, historians. What? No, Shakespeare was well after. What? The 1400s. Petrarch. Petrarch, who began the translation of Greek and Latin 
classic poetry and was himself a poet. Invented the form we know as the sonnet. This was also called, no, the foremost figures were Erasmus and Thomas More, and humanism was called the new learning. Now, you probably, how many people know the gentleman on the left? That is Desiderius Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus, one of my favorite comments of his is, when I get a little money, I buy books. If there's any left, I buy food and clothing. (laughs) Um, Erasmus wrote two major works, or published two major works. One was the first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. Up until that time, most, even biblical scholars, were tied to the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation from the Greek into Latin, the vulgar tongue. The other work was Encomium Moriae, in praise of folly. Now, one of the things, two of the things that this reveals about Erasmus, one of the most important is he had a terrific sense of humor. He had a very good sense of humor. And he also thought perhaps the best way to reform the church was through satire. Through satire. Erasmus was the John Oliver of the 15th and 16th centuries. Okay, although probably much less profane. But in any event, he... The encomium morii satirized virtually anything and anybody. He was an equal opportunity satirist. Thomas More, of course, his major work was Utopia. And again, what he was trying to do was to show what was wrong with society by creating a picture of an ideal society. In other words, a society that had been completely reformed. Now, the important thing to keep in mind about Erasmus and Moore is that they were both very loyal Catholics and very opposed to the Reformation. Moore, in fact, as you may know if you watch the series Wolf Hall, spent a fair amount of time burning heretics and torturing them. So, you know, there is a downside to some of this. But in any event, those are the two humanists. Now, back to Zwingli. Reforming of Zurich. In 1518, Zwingli was called to Zurich to serve as the people's priest at the Grossmünster, the main cathedral in Zurich. Okay, the main church. And at first, he chartered a moderate course between Erasmus and Luther. And as he went on, he became increasingly radical in his views. He attacked fasting, the damnation of unbaptized infants, and the power of excommunication. But he especially attacked tithes and indulgences. Now again, what's the problem about attacking tithes and indulgences if you are a pastor at a church under the Bishop of Constance. You're attacking his income. You're attacking his income. The Bishop of Constance was not amused. Okay. 
But he, the first issue he really took on practically was fasting, because on the first fasting day in Lent in 1522, he stayed the worst essen, the worst essen, the sausage eating. Okay, and what he did is he went to a shop of a friend and he cut up two sausages. This is the first fasting day in Lent, keep in mind, and he distributed them. And this was a revolutionary act, the Wurst Essen. And so the reform was underway for better for Wurst. <laughs> and he defended his action in a sermon, and that was the start of the Reformation in Zurich. Another thing he did was to effectively abolish clerical celibacy. And this didn't really take very much because the Bishop of Constance did do one thing recognizing typical human nature. He allowed his priests to have concubines. And he had wide permit of clerical concubinage. Zwingli said, wouldn't it be better if they just got married? So uh, a little less hypocrisy and also a little better for the women, a little more legal protection. So, Now, there were a couple of disputations in Zurich. Uh, the first disputation took place early in 1523. Uh, Zwingli was called upon to defend his views, and he did so capably. So the city council, now notice this. Who is carrying out the actual action here of reforming the church? It's the city council of Zurich. Remember the idea we got from Marsilius of Padua? What was that idea? Come on. The supremacy of the civil authority over the church. The civil authority. The magistrate. That is why when you look at the mainline Protestant reform movements, it is always being carried out through a political process. That's why we call it the magisterial reformation. Okay, and that includes almost all branches. Okay, Lutheran, Reform, Anglican, called the magisterial Why? It's reformation by the magistrate. Reformation by the magistrate. Okay. So they like to keep things legal in those days, which I'm sure makes the judges and lawyers here happy. But the really important disputation was, well, uh, the result is the city council decided Swingley could continue to preach exactly as he had been. So they essentially backed his ideas. And this is interesting. They ordered all other preachers in the city to preach only in accordance with Scripture. 
In other words, you've established in the church in Zurich the principle of sola scriptura. Okay, very important. But again, the second Zurich disputation took place in October, and it was called essentially to debate two issues. The use of images in the church and the mass, the Eucharist. What was it? What did it mean? And the main practical steps that were taken at that point was over images. There were some people who wanted to just basically go into the churches and get rid of all the paintings, all of the statutes. It's interesting, I once visited Zurich and I went into the Grossminster and it is incredibly bare. It is incredibly bare, okay? Not much to satisfy the taste for visual art. Um, and so what they did is that the preachers were ordered to preach against images and the deadline on a decision on the images was gonna come at the next Pentecost. So they gave them a few months to preach against images and they didn't actually have to take some action because what it did is it led to the gradual elimination of images. But what about that other issue, the mass? And here's where we come to Zwingli's big idea. The memorial theory of the Eucharist. So this is what I really want you to take away from Swingley. This is perhaps the most radical position on the Lord's Supper that was taken in the Reformation. It's only a memorial. It is a memorial meal. Now, what do we mean by that? First of all, the problem that Swingley was responding to is that there was a varied practice of Eucharist in the canton. And so what he did is he drafted a communion liturgy and it was in German. What had the language been for the mass up until that point? Latin. Latin, strictly in Latin. He drafted this liturgy in German and it was called in translation, act or custom of the supper. The supper, that was his term that he used in the title of the work the Lord's Supper. And he first celebrated his liturgy on Maundy Thursday, 1525. Why would that particular time be appropriate for him to first celebrate his liturgy? Thursday before Easter, what took place the Thursday before Easter, before the Last Supper, where Jesus instituted the Supper. That's the day he chooses to first use his new liturgy. Not only that, he used wooden cups and plates, not silver or gold chalices and patens or jewels or anything like that. Wooden cups and plates in order to keep things simple and every day, and he had the people seated at table if you received communion back in the old days, how would you receive communion? You would go to the altar rail and you will kneel, okay? 
Keep in mind, by the way, that altar rails originally were not designed to be a place where people kneeled to receive communion. They were designed in the early churches to keep dogs away from the altar so they wouldn't relieve themselves on it. Okay. Then he also wrote a, a, a tract on the Eucharist where Swingley claimed, and here's the big thing, uh, Bill Clinton was not the first person to say, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Okay, because this was the key debate, that when you look at the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, what does the word is mean? And Swingley claimed that the word is there actually meant signifies. Signifies. This signifies my body given for you. This signifies because Swingley, in a sense, rightly observed that Jesus could not have been speaking literally because, you know, pick up a piece of bread. Oh, this is my body. No, this is my body. This is not my body. Okay, so it was an obvious metaphor. Well, Luther was strongly wedded to the concept of real presence in the Eucharist, saying that the real body and blood of Jesus were received in, with, and under. Those were his terms, in, with, and under. It's a very structural model. In, with, and under the bread and wine. And so this started a ferocious debate in the Protestant world between Luther and his followers, including his disciple Melanchthon, and Swingley and his supporters, including a fellow by the name of Johann Echolampadius. I know you all know who, you've heard the name Echolampadius. But in any event, uh, some of the Protestant princes in Germany were really concerned that right here, at the very beginning, really, this is still the first generation of the Protestant movement, of the Protestant Reformation. They were really concerned uh, about this whole division and, you know, this strife within Protestant ranks. This was not a time for division. So, Philip of Hesse called together a colloquy or conversation to take place in Marburg in his principality in order to try to reconcile the different branches of Protestantism. And you had Swingley and Echolampadius on one side for the memorialist theory, and Luther and Melanchthon with some others on the other. And you also had some people like Martin Bootser, who was the reformer of, of uh, uh, Strasbourg, who uh, were trying to mediate between the two positions. And Bootser will be a very important figure because he will become one of the major reformer I, uh, whose ideas contributed to the English Reformation. So they brought them together. Now Luther happened to have the advantage of arriving first. Maybe he had, I think he probably had a shorter distance to travel. Now in those days, they didn't have bare tables like this. Tables, if you notice from some of those paintings seem always to be covered in carpets. 
And they are, especially if you notice that in Dutch paintings. I remember when my sister and I were on a trip back from Israel, and we stayed in Amsterdam, and at the bed and breakfast, they actually had carpets covering the table. And uh, that was their table linens. But so they had a carpet on the table that was there between Luther and Zwingli. And Luther arrived early, pulled back the corner of the carpet, and with his penknife, carved into the table, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And then he sort of put the carpet back. So when Swingley arrived and they started the colloquy, every time Swingley would argue for the memorial theory of the Eucharist, Luther would just flip back the corner of the carpet, point to that on the table, and pound it saying, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. Hoc est corpus meum. Now, what's the irony of this situation? It was pointed out beautifully when I went to a conference in West Virginia, in Charleston, where William Lazarus, who was the Secretary of the Faith and Order Division of the World Council of Churches, pointed out that what Luther and Swingley were arguing about is the meaning of a word that Jesus could never have said because Jesus spoke Aramaic. And Aramaic is a Semitic language. And Semitic languages have no present tense of the verb to be. It is the one verb that has no present tense. So what Jesus actually said is not, this is my body, but this my body. Something like that. Now, what does that mean? This my body? Obviously, it's open to interpretation. Okay. Now, they managed to agree on 14 articles, but on the key article of the meaning of the Lord's Supper, there was no agreement on real presence versus memorial theory. And it really is this event that led to the split between the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions, which really has not healed to this day. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is, what was one of the key issues that led to the split between the Eastern and Western churches? Anybody know? Do you use leavened or unleavened bread in the Eucharist? The Eastern church held out for leavened bread. The, East, the Western church used unleavened bread, and that was one of the reasons why in 1454 the Pope excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, and according to the Eastern Church, that made that particular Pope the first Protestant. Okay, any questions about Swingley? I spent a lot of time on Swingley. Um, keep in mind, like I said, he did not really have time to carry through a thorough reform in Zurich. There were wars between the various Swiss cantons, and uh, in, one of, in one of those wars at the field of Kappel, uh, Swingley was on the battlefield and was killed, and Luther thought that was a just compensation for him. How dare he actually take up the sword? So the next person we're going to discuss is someone we probably need to pay more attention to in the history of the form tradition. 
Heinrich Bullinger. Heinrich Bullinger. Bullinger was born July 18, 1504 in Bremgarten in Switzerland, and he died September 17, 1575 in Zurich. And it was Bullinger who really consolidated and carried through the reform in Zurich. So, first of all, a little bit about his education and career. He was educated, got his secondary education at the Gymnasium of Emmerich in Cleves. He left there at the age of 15. He was there from 13 to 15, 12 to 15, about that age. That was considered one of the most prestigious secondary schools in all of Europe. So he got the best possible secondary education. Now, thing to keep in mind about gymnasium, it's maybe a little less true then maybe than it is today, but when you graduate from a gymnasium in Germany to this day, you have had the equivalent of a junior college education. Not just high school, but a junior college education. And you go to university and when you go to a German university, you enroll in a faculty and you study for six years as a doctoral student. They don't have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees. Your only degree from a university is your doctorate. And the only exam that you present in all of those six years is your doctoral comprehensives. So imagine going six years to university and really not having a faintest idea about whether you're getting this or not. And um, your only paper is your doctoral dissertation. And all doctoral dissertations in Germany are published. So you're talking about a different kind of university system. But he graduated from this gymnasium in Emmerich in 1519 to 1522, he studied at the University of Cologne. He studied, made a special study of the church fathers, that is, those post-biblical writers in the church's history, you know, sort of when it was really one holy Catholic and apostolic, according to the mythology. And um, he made a special study of the church fathers and became convinced that Luther's teachings were more faithful to the Bible and the church fathers than medieval scholasticism. Now that is huge. That is huge. Uh, because it is one of the things that will later have enormous influence on the English Reformation and the spirit of Anglicanism. That it is the Bible and the church fathers that you need to look at in terms of what really was the apostolic tradition. Then he came under the influence of Zwingli and moved to Zurich. And he eventually became overseer over other ministers in Zurich, a term known as the Antistes. And he did that in 1531 and held that position until his death. Now, anybody know, what's the Greek equivalent of overseer?
It's episkopos. What word do we get from that? Bishop. Bishop. Okay. So why wasn't he made the Bishop of Zurich? Because they were allergic to bishops. Because the bishops in that region were opposed to reform. So they couldn't call him a bishop, so they called him Antistes of the church. And he consolidated the Reformation in Zurich after Zwingli's death. Okay. Now, when we turn to Bollinger's works, there are three major things that he has to bear responsibility for. One was a work called The Decades, The Decades, a sort of series of theological essays. The important thing about The Decades is that they were far more widely translated, published, and read in England than Calvin's Institutes. They became the theological textbook for English Protestants in the 16th century. Those priests who couldn't read Latin were given the task of studying Bullinger's decades in English translation, about 110 or 120 different editions, and there were only about a couple of dozen editions of the Institutes published. And so his idea, uh, ideas had very wide circulation well beyond the reform lands. He also reached with Calvin the consensus Tigurinus, or Zurich consensus formula, on the Lord's Supper. And this is very important because what it did is it sort of brought together the Zwinglian idea of the memorial theory of the Eucharist with Calvin's idea of spiritual presence. Spiritual presence. Now, I remember when uh, Pastor Michael was presenting one of the uh, reform, uh, can't remember, one of the reform confessions, and he talked about how uh, much time was spent on the doctrine of the ascension. Why would the reform tradition spend a lot of time talking about the ascension of Christ in their, in their confessions. Because Luther, behind his theory of real presence, developed an understanding that the human body and blood of Jesus had been gifted with the divine attribute of ubiquity. And therefore, as he once, in his forceful way, said, Christ is present in my cabbage soup. Okay, so not just in the Eucharist, but especially in the Eucharist. And what the Reformed tradition was saying is, no, a human body is a human body, it is finite, it is limited, and the body and blood, the flesh and blood of Jesus is not present in the Eucharist, because where is it? At the right hand of the Father in heaven. In other words, not here. So how is Christ present in the Eucharist? By the Holy Spirit. It was Zwingli who brought these two ideas together in the consensus Tigurinus and thus united the Swiss reform movement. He also co-authored the second Helvetic Confession, 
Helvetic referring to the Swiss, of 1566. Now, the second Helvetic confession, along with the Heidelberg Catechism, are the most widely accepted and widely revered confessional documents in the Reformed tradition worldwide. Much more widely uh, held than the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechisms. Okay. Now, especially in the decades, and it's important that people were reading that in England in the decades, because it brings us to Bullinger's big idea, covenant theology. Covenant theology. Uh, The idea of the covenant as an overarching and underpinning concept was crucial to Bollinger, okay? And he had a couple of problems that you solve by a covenant. Luther, when he approached the doctrine of sola scriptura, what did he really put in place of that as we discussed last week? His doctrine of the word. His doctrine of the word, which enabled him, in effect, to have a canon within the canon. That is, something in Scripture did not seem to witness to Jesus Christ and him crucified and justification by faith. It didn't really have authority. Well, the Reformed tradition came up with this idea of the plenary inspiration of the Scriptures, which meant every passage in Scripture is as sacred as every other passage in Scripture. So what you need to do is you need to find some kind of concept that will serve as a center for biblical theology and an overarching interpretive method, okay? And that was done with the concept of covenant. Covenant. So you basically begin interpreting the entire biblical witness as covenantal. In other words, what do we call the two parts of our Bible? The Old Testament and the New Testament. What does testament there mean? It means a covenant. It's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay, covenant is all. Now, the concept of covenant when you think about where it came from, it came from Israel's experience really in the Exodus and at Sinai. And it's an interesting problem. There are two legends about what happened at Sinai. Um, And so I'm going to digress for a moment to do a little bit of rabbinics. But there is one rabbinic story that notes the fact that if you look at Genesis 1, in the Hebrew anyway, it says, Vayihi era, Vayihi voker, Yom, and then Echad, Shtaim, you know, Sheni, Shlishi, Ravii. So basically, it's just, and it was evening and it was morning, a uh, one day, a second day, a third day. But when you get to day six, it's Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. All of a sudden, it introduces the definite article. Now, if you're a rabbi, that means something. And you spend your time trying to figure out what does it mean 
to have the sixth day. And they said, well, Israel stood at Sinai to receive the Torah on the sixth day of the third month after the Exodus. And therefore, the whole of creation was totally contingent upon Israel's voluntary acceptance of the Torah when they said to Moses, all that the Lord has said to us, we will do and we will obey. In other words, this was totally voluntary acceptance of the Torah. And it was only at that point that the whole creation was in a sense verified, established. On the other hand, it talks about the people gathering under the mountain in Exodus. And so another rabbinic story runs, Kafa Alehem Harkagigi, he held the mountain over them, over their heads, and basically said, okay, here's your choice. Accept my Torah or I'll drop this on you and wipe you out. Okay, now, you know, that's not exactly a voluntary choice, is it? So here was the acceptance of the Torah. Was, was it a free voluntary act or was it involuntary? This is, basically goes back to a problem. When you have divine omnipotence and unlimited freedom face to face with limited human freedom, finite human freedom, and finite human integrity, how do you preserve both sides in the relationship? So it's an authentic relationship. The answer is covenant. You have both sides, in effect, unconditionally commit to the relationship. Unconditionally and freely. And therefore, you find this perfect solution for the divine human relationship. Now, this idea was perfect for covenant theologians because they said basically, absolutely everything, even the created order, operates on the basis of covenant. And this became the cardinal principle of later Puritan theology in England. Remember I said the decades were more widely read and published than the Institutes? Puritanism was more Bullingerian than it was Calvinist. And so they did everything in terms of covenant. This is a huge concept. So that's Bullinger's big idea. We're beginning to run out of time. So finally we come to John Calvin. And so what you're getting is essentially a one-foot presentation of Calvin and John Knox. Okay. Calvin was born Jehan Chauvin on July 10th, 1509 in Noyon, Picardy in France. He was a Frenchman. He was a Frenchman. He died on May 27th, 1564, aged only 54 in Geneva, Switzerland. Now you look at his education and it was just absolutely mind-blowing. He was educated at the Collège de la Marche, University of Paris. Now the University of Paris 
was the preeminent university in Europe. And especially if you wanted to study theology, that's where you went from anywhere in the Catholic world. Although, as we will see, he didn't really study theology. He also studied at the universities of Orléans and Bourges. So again, he's being educated in Catholic France. Like Swingley, he had a background in humanism. And here comes the difficult thing. This explains a great deal about Calvin's character and writing. He trained as a lawyer. He trained as a lawyer. And lawyers like things neat and tied up in a neat little bundle. In his early career, he broke from Roman Catholicism about 1530 and then fled to Basel, Switzerland after a wave of violence against Protestants in France. In 1536, he published in Basel the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is the work for which Calvin is most known. That same year, he was invited by a fellow Frenchman named William or Guillaume Farel uh, to come to Geneva and to carry on the Reformation there. However, it was not very successful. Both men were soon expelled from the city. Then Martin Bootser, who had been in charge of the Reformation in Strasbourg, invited him there. He was invited back to Geneva in 1541, and there he led and secured the Protestant Reformation in Geneva, running the place, one might say, almost as a dictator. Now, his major works, obviously the most major work is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He also wrote commentaries on most books of the Bible. He participated in writing various confessional documents. He wrote various short theological treatises. And so you have to say, John Calvin is the systematic theologian of the Reformation. The systematic theologian of the Reformation. Now what's a systematic theologian of the Reformation? A systematic theologian is one who tries to present all the doctrines of the Christian faith as a system, as a coherent and comprehensive and reasonable system. Okay, as opposed to, say, a dogmatic theologian who just wants to present all the doctrines, whether they fit together or not. But he is the systematic theologian of the Reformation. But keep in mind, he is a second-generation reformer like Heinrich Bullinger. Now, what was Calvin's big idea? Anybody? What was Calvin's big idea? What's the one idea you tend most to associate with Calvin and Calvinism? What happened? I know the coffee here is supposed to be um, decaffeinated, but you know, obviously people are still a little bit asleep. Big idea, nobody? What? Predestination, that's what everybody thinks of with Calvin. 
they think of predestination. Well, guess what? It was not predestination. (laughs) I knew somebody was going to say that. Okay. Somebody was predestined to say that. I love the line in the... uh, There's a marvelous piece of Southern writing by a very precocious teenager called Virginia Carey Hudson called O.E. Jigs and Juleps about her growing up in the South in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And she got into an argument with some of her Presbyterian friends when she says, Presbyterians believe in procrastination. (laughs) So when they didn't believe it, they said, well, let's go to the pastor and see. So they went to the Presbyterian pastor's house and said, you know, I told my friends that Presbyterians believe in procrastination. He said, they certainly do, and all you need to do is look at the church books and to see it. <laughs> okay. For Calvin, predestination was a relatively minor issue. The big one was the absolute sovereignty of God. Absolute sovereignty of God. And this is the overarching concept of the Institutes. You start with an understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God over everything, over nature, over history, over the whole order of salvation, the ordo salutis. And that's where predestination comes in. Because if coming to Christ and believing in Christ, whose idea was that? I can't say it was my idea. It was God's idea. And if an absolutely sovereign God says, you're going to believe in Jesus and you're going to be saved, who are you to say no? Who are you to say no? Now, it's interesting. We had, I remember in seminary, I had my church historian was a Lutheran. And he really did, was a dynamic speaker. He was so much fun. Don Armentrout, who is, may he rest in peace. And I had a classmate, Greg, who anytime we got anywhere near the doctrine of election, he always said something like, I have a real problem with that. He almost said exactly the same thing every time. I have a real problem with that. And finally, I remember Don looking at him and said, I know you want to be responsible for your own salvation. I don't. I just blow it. Don't you see that the doctrine of election is a gracious doctrine? I don't have to take responsibility for my own salvation. God's already decided that. Isn't it wonderful? Unless you suspect you're not among the saved. Well, there you get into all the arguments of predestination, single, double, you know, single, double, double, double. I don't know, double, double, toil and trouble. Um... The key thing to keep in mind, if you're a systematic theologian, and here's something very important. If you're a systematic theologian, it's not only important what you say about an idea, but where in your system you place it. And Calvin was careful to place his whole discussion of predestination under the heading of Justification. Justification. Okay? Which means that predestination is essentially instrumental. Okay? Not metaphysical. And the important point is, he didn't put it in the doctrine of God. 
He didn't put it in his discussion of Christ. His disciple Theodore Beza did. And what's the difference? If you follow Calvin, he can say, don't look within yourself for the signs of your election. That's the wrong place to look. You look to Christ as the perfect mirror of election. And if you're looking to Christ, then you are among the elect. But by the time Beza got through with the idea, you couldn't look to Christ as the mirror of election because you didn't know whether Christ died for you or not. And that led to all of the crazy, morbid introspection that characterized the Puritan movement. But it wasn't Calvin himself. So like I said, Calvin could probably have said, Allah Jung, God deliver me from the Calvinists. But the key idea is, I remember when I was in t- taking systematic theology in, in seminary, we were assigned, each of us had a theologian that we were supposed to sort of monitor through all the Christian doctrines. And my friend Larry Sharpton in my class drew, you know, decided to take Lu- uh, Calvin. And I well remember how he summed it up. He just sort of, when it came to his turn to talk about, I can't remember which doctrine it was, but um, he said, if it happened, God did it. Okay, and now we come to the person who basically gave you your church, John Knox, the reformer of Scotland. He was born about 1513 in Gifford Gate, Haddington in Scotland, and he died November 24th, 1572 in Edinburgh. In terms of his education and career, he is thought to have been educated at the University of St. Andrews, but no one's certain about that. Um, He joined another reformer named George Wishart in an attempt to reform the Scottish church. However, at that time, Scotland was being governed by Mary of Guise, a French noblewoman who was the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, and the widow of one of the King Jameses, King James V, I think, and was thoroughly uh, Catholic along with her Cardinal Beaton. And uh, after Beaton was assassinated, um, Mary of Guise called in French troops to restore order in Scotland, and Wishart and uh, Knox were taken prisoner by the French forces Wishart was burned at the stake, and John Knox was sent to the galleys. Now, you got to keep in mind, this does something to you. When you are literally sent to the galleys, chained to a bench, oaring galleys for years at the behest of a Catholic woman ruler using French Catholic forces, you're not likely to have a too great an idea of Catholicism. Uh, eventually, he was exiled, released, no one knows how or why he was released in 1549 and exiled to England. And there he actually had an interesting, short, if meaningful career. He served as a royal chaplain to Edward VI, the Protestant son, 
of Henry VIII. He influenced the Second Book of Common Prayer of 1552. Then he left England very wisely at the accession of Mary Tudor, who reinstituted Catholicism. He moved to Geneva, and where he encountered Calvin and learned a great deal from Calvin, but then moved to Frankfurt. Frankfurt was a very important reform city because that's where all the Protestant exiles from England took refuge. On return to Scotland, he led the reform of the Scottish Kirk in partnership with the Scottish nobility. Again, who is he partnering with? The civil authority, the Scottish nobility. Okay, so what is Knox's big idea? Now, you might think, because it's about the only book that anybody knows of Knox's, that they report is the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regimen of women. Okay, this is not an anti-female tract, by the way, and he doesn't say monstrous regiment, but monstrous regimen. And he's thinking in particular of three women. And who are the three women that he is inveighing against? He is inveighing against Mary, Queen of Scots, and her mother Mary of Guise, by the way, Queen Elizabeth, and Mary Tudor before her. Because, what was he saying? Woman doesn't belong on the throne. That's a man's job. So this is a terrible idea. No, it was Presbyterian church government. That's his big idea. Presbyterian. Again, Knox especially is profoundly allergic to bishops and episcopacy. So what does he do? He essentially substitutes for it this idea he learned from Calvin in Geneva about a sort of graduated interlocking set of committees. He applied it nationwide in Scotland. You know, uh, Calvin applied it in Geneva, but it took someone like Knox to apply it to an entire country. And later, they tried applying it to England in the first phase of the English Civil War. And that's why so many of the Presbyterian formularies were drawn up at Westminster, which is in London. Uh, Or actually, then it was the city of Westminster. It was separate from London, but in England. Okay? Now, we're out of time. So... You can thank John Knox, by the way, for the bagpipes and kilts that you'll be seeing next week. The big ideas today, the memorial theory of the Eucharist from Swingley, covenant theology from Bullinger, the absolute sovereignty of God from Calvin, and the Presbyterian church government that was brought to Scotland by John Knox and became the basis of the Presbyterian Church, where we're sitting today. Any questions at this point? What? George III said if we just hang all the Presbyterians. Yes. Well, one of the things that also people don't realize is everybody thought when James I of England, James VI of Scotland, 
ascended to the throne at the death of Elizabeth, they thought, oh my goodness, this is great. He's been raised by Protestants in Presbyterian Scotland. He'll be on our side. Well, he'd seen about enough of Scottish Presbyterianism, and he was really fond of bishops. And so, you know, that did not work out so well. Any other comments or questions? Let us pray. Abba, Father, thank you for bringing us together. Help us to understand the road by which we have come so that we may help to learn, you may help us to learn from our past to give us wisdom for the future. For we know that our future is your son, Jesus Christ, in whose holy name we pray, amen.